Okay, everybody. Let's continue on together. Good morning. How are you doing? Happy summer. Uh, I've been away for a bit of holiday, so it's lovely to be back amongst you. If you're new, my name's Philip. I, I lead the team here, one of the pastors, and I'm going to teach from the Bible, as we do here each and every week at King's Church. But first, I want to just welcome some special friends back into the life of King's Church. Uh, John and Sophie Ford and your wonderful children. It is so good to have you back amongst us. Yeah, I can't tell you how pleased my daughter was to see Grace this morning. <laughs> it was like I was a minor irrelevance compared to Grace coming back. If you don't know John and Sophie, these guys have been uh, planting a wonderful gospel-centered, spirit-filled church in the heart of Istanbul. There wasn't one there six years ago. There is one there now, uh, not least thanks to all they've been doing. So we are so proud of you uh, and, and inspired by you and grateful to have you with us again and excited as to all God's going to do. Listen, this psalm this morning, this is a bold claim, is going to teach us a lot about the purpose for which you and I are made. And it's going to help us live that out a bit more this week. So I want to make a bold claim this morning that I'm here, or the Word of God is here, to remind you, or maybe tell you for the first time, what is the ultimate purpose for which you are on the earth? And how you can better live that out this week. It's going to be in Psalm 98 in a moment. But before I get to that, Time Magazine. Some of you may have read Time Magazine over the years. Time Magazine, a few years ago, um, didn't, wrote an article entitled The Greatest Graduation Speech of All Time. So in the States, uh, commencement speeches, grad speeches are probably a bigger deal than they are here. And they wrote an article about this speech that was given by a guy called David Foster Wallace, um, who is a, quite a well-known uh, philosopher and thinker and writer, sadly, not with us today. And this speech given to uh, Kenyan uh, College in 2005 kind of went viral, has gone viral ever since. And it's a long speech. You can read it for yourself on the internet. It's a fascinating speech. He's not a Christian as far as I know, wasn't a Christian as far as I know, not a believer. But he wrote a really interesting, or he gave a very interesting speech that moved and inspired and challenged a lot of people, millions of people it seems. And he said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Big claim. What do you mean? There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he went on as a, a non-believer, but somebody interested in spiritual and philosophical things. He went on to give a pretty uh, compelling, I would say, kind of deconstruction of all the various things in life that humans give themselves to in worship, i.e. give ourselves to as things we believe of supreme worth, whether they're physical beauty uh, or power or wealth or intellect. And he says, if you give, themsel- if you give yourself to those things, as, a, as you give yourself completely to those things, he says, they will ultimately eat you alive. That was the kind of warning that he gave to these students back in 2005. It's a really interesting speech if you want to read it. But the essential point that he was driving home was that human beings are innately wired to give ourselves heart, mind, body, and soul to that which we believe is of supreme worth. So I guess it's a pretty good description of worship. He said we're uniquely wired to give ourselves heart, mind, body, and soul to that which we believe is of supreme worth. And the Bible says that's not a surprise. The Bible's been saying that for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. God has made us like that. It's not an accident that we're uniquely wired to give ourselves to things that we believe are of supreme worth. And the Bible also tells us that what humans have done is ended up giving ourselves to created things, believing that they are of such supreme worth 
whether it's relationships or power or wealth or money or whatever, that they will bring us satisfaction. The story of the Bible tells us that we've wrongly, we've been corrupted by sin and we give ourselves to created things rather than giving ourselves to the creator. So the Bible tells us, God tells us, that not only are we innately wired to worship, we're innately wired to worship God, he who is of supreme worth. Isaiah puts it pretty clearly, or God says this through Isaiah in chapter uh, 43. God says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God says very clearly, I've made people ultimately that they might be the means of imaging back, reflecting, being like mirrors that others might see my glory and what I'm like. And then in verse 21 he says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. In other words, people give glory to God not least by praising and worshipping him with their lives and with their lips. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Because the claim of the Bible is that we're made to worship. We're made to give praise to God. That's the purpose for which you and I are built. And I want to help you do that this week. And this psalm that I'm going to mention in a minute helps us do that this week, really practically and I hope joyfully. I want to be clear, I'm talking about worship in the sense of sung and spoken worship this morning. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 13 gives us a really good pithy description of the holistic nature of worship, the kind of thing David Foster Wallace is talking about, the heart, mind, body, soul, giving ourselves. The writer of Hebrews says this, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Brackets. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other, words, in other words, worship is what we say and what we do. But I want to talk to you this morning specifically about the worship that we say and even more specifically about the worship that we sing in order that you can be equipped today and tomorrow to live out that aspect of your purpose for living. To sing, perhaps, certainly to speak worship and praise to God. So we've got three Sundays, as Jason said, over the summer. We're calling the little series uh, Summer Songs. And just using those summer moments to think about what it is to grow as being joyful, purposeful worshippers and perhaps even singers of God. And the Psalms, if you don't know, are effectively a songbook. That's what they are. We often read them, but they were written to be sung by uh, groups of people. Jesus would have sung the Psalms, almost certainly. He knew the Psalms inside out. He was always quoting them. He would have walked the earth singing the Psalms, both to himself and, and with, his, with his friends. And in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, the Bible tells us to be a people. Christians are those that sing Psalms, it says, with one another and to one another. So it's not just a thing that David did in the Psalms uh, 3,000 years ago. It's a thing that the church are called to do right now, to sing the Psalms to one another, for one another, and with each other. So here we go, Psalm 98. Probably David, but we're not certain, said this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets, brackets and drums, and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. 
Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It is warm in here, isn't it? <laughs> Normally it is chilly in the auditorium and now it is warm. So I'm going to have to watch out for some of you dozing off quietly uh, in the warmth. What does this psalm teach us about how to worship? How does it, how does it help us this morning? And this week, live out the purpose for which we are made. Um, there's a worship leader called Matt Redman who talks about some worship, as, in Christian sense, as fundamentally being about breathing in and breathing out. Just do that. Breathe in and breathe out. Okay, remember those two little physical things. By, by that he means, thank you, next quote, he says, I cannot sing. My, my, my quote just stops there. He carries on. I cannot sing. Very good. You got there. You are awake. I cannot sing before I have seen. All worship is a response to a revelation. It's only as we breathe in more of the wonders of God that we can breathe out a fuller response to him. The key to a life of passionate and powerful worship comes from seeing God. In other words, he deliberately writes songs. Have we sung one yet this morning? Maybe not, not sure we have. He deliberately writes songs where he helps us to breathe in the goodness of God, to see something of who God is, in order that we can breathe out our praise to him, our commitment to him, our worship of him. So I want to show you from this psalm how you can breathe in and breathe out as a more joyful worshiper this week. And breathing in in this psalm, it's fundamentally about three things. It's about looking back, looking up, and looking forward. So right now, I want you to turn around and look back. Then I want you to look up. And I want you to look forward. If you remember nothing else this morning, remember there was something about looking back, looking up, and looking forward. That's how you breathe in as a worshiper of God. So we look back at what God has done. We look up at what God is like, and we look forward to what God will do. You do those things, you begin to grow as a worshiper of God and all the joy that comes with it. What do I mean by that? Looking back. Well, can you see in verses one to three, uh, David writes things like, or the psalmist writes things like, celebrating the marvelous things God has done. Ross, I didn't know that before this week, but Ross is the first song he chose. Do you remember it? If you were here. The first song was about celebrating the great things God has done. That's exactly what David the psalmist is doing here. He celebrates what God has done, the salvation or the rescue. He has worked, the things he's revealed, that which God has remembered. It's past tense, isn't it? He's saying these are the things God has done. He's using that as, uh, both as, as part of his worship and indeed of the fuel to his worship. Let me say that again. He uses what God has done both as part of the act of worship but also as the fuel to worship. That's why we sang a song about what God has done. And in my experience, maybe you're far more spiritual than me, almost certainly, but in my experience, sometimes my present circumstances define how I go about worshipping. Often that's the case for us if we're Christians, that we, we, we come into a worship context, whether it's a corporate one like this, or just our own time in the morning, or whatever, and because maybe our, our marriage is hard, or our finances are on the edge, or just work is going round and round in our head, or the health of our loved ones is in doubt, we, we allow those present things to kind of really define how we go about worshipping. This psalmist starts by looking back at what God has done. Allow what God has done in the past 
to therefore define your worship in the present. And that can be real simple. You don't have to know loads and loads of Bible. You just allow yourself to think back as to what God has done, which might be as simple as, God, thank you that you created the heavens and the earth. This is not an accident of time, chance, and space. There's a designer behind this incredible creation. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you were so faithful to the people of Israel. You didn't give up on them like I would have done, but you stayed faithful to them. You wrote this story that Jesus comes into, which means that I'm written into the story, and I've got a place and a purpose in the story of God. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that last year I didn't have a job, wasn't quite sure what to do, and now I have work. So it can be little small personal things. It can be the big things of the story of the Bible and so on and so forth. Do we thank things for what God has done? Even in Psalm 73, which I won't put on the screen. If you read Psalm 73, you think, well, Philip, your, your rules, and these aren't rules, by the way. These are uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. But you might say, well, your, your descriptions don't work in Psalm 73. If you read Psalm 73, and you've got the psalm, it's just basically moaning about how hard life is. From verse 2 onwards, he is declaring just how fed up he is. And the reason the psalmist is fed up is that he says, I've been doing all the right things, and my life's going badly. And these people around me are doing all the wrong things and their life's going really well. I don't like it. Spends about 20 verses saying that. Says things like, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. It's a worship song, by the way. But in verse one, in verse one, he writes, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure. I.e., I'm going to start, only one verse, (laughs) but I'm going to start by saying what God has done. So, number one, looking back. Number two, looking up. Those of us who are on the front row were definitely doing some looking up with this, with this screen just now. Number one, looking back. Number two, looking up to what God is like. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. He has remembered his steadfast love. And so the writer, probably David, is definitely talking in the present, in the current, in his context of 1000 BC, people of Israel. He's definitely talking about the things that that God has done uh, in terms of rescuing the Israelites over the last few hundred years, harking back to all the stories of God's rescue of a rebellious people. He's probably thinking about the Exodus and all the things since then. He's saying, God, you've revealed your rescue for us and your righteousness for us. But he's also looking ahead, because all of the Old Testament, as I said many times before, is giving us glimpses of both our need for Jesus and of what Jesus is like. In other words, you can always see both our need for a savior and the nature of that savior. So David is pointing to Jesus here as well as the current context. And as, right, as, as readers of this psalm, this side of the cross, you, can you begin to glimpse something of what God is like in Jesus in these kinds of words? Because we are people that say God has definitely truly made his salvation and his righteousness known. Ultimately, he's done that in Jesus You might look at that phrase, steadfast love, and say, God, thank you. That that the steadfast love that goes back as far as the promises to Abraham, you fulfilled that in Jesus. I can see now, I see steadfast love, I see righteousness, I see salvation. That takes me to what God is like in Jesus. And so having looked back at what God has done, I begin to look up at what Jesus is like. I begin to pray things or sing things or write things and say, Jesus, thank you. You are you're the most courageous, the most bold, the most faithful, the most kind, the most compassionate, the most wise that ever lived. And, and when I'm none of those things, I can look to you right now. And actually, in the context of worship, I can start to become those things as I look at you. There you are, Jesus, seated right now, ruling and reigning on the throne of grace, all things under his feet as Jason prayed 
We look back at what God has done. We look into the face of God or up at the face of God in Jesus and what he is like. We say things like, in you, Jesus, I I can see steadfast love absolutely perfectly embodied. There is no steadfast love like that of Jesus. It takes him all the way to the cross. I can see the, the absolute pinnacle of steadfast love there on the cross. God laying his life down for people like you and I. That is steadfast love. Jesus, you're amazing. Look back at what God has done. Look up at what Jesus is like. Let me give you a little illustration just to kind of ground it a bit more. And like all illustrations, it's deeply imperfect. But here it goes. Uh, last week, we were on, on holiday uh, with my family, parents, and, and siblings, and nieces and nephews and things. And it was my parents' uh, 40th wedding anniversary. Um, so we had a sort of day basically just uh, celebrating, celebrating that. And we did a couple of things. Me and Caroline and we're kind of tasked with the, the celebration bit uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the celebrations. And so we got mum and dad to do like a Mr. and Mrs. quiz. Those of you who've recently been, had stags and hens and things, might have, might have done these kinds of things. So we got mum and dad to basically look back at the last 40 years of their married life and have different questions. And basically we asked them that the various things that they're grateful for for the last 40 years, the things they remember most fondly, the things that amuse them, the things they like about each other, the things that were hard over the 40 years, but yet by the grace of God they came through. We just spent some time as a family basically looking back. And then we got the grandchildren, our various nieces and nephews, in advance to say the various things they really loved about Granny and Grandpa. Um, and one of them said, I, I love it that Granny buys me ice creams. And one of, them said, I, one of them said, I love it that Granny sends me rude emojis on WhatsApp. <laughs> um, uh, Isabella, who's 21 months, uh, she showed remarkable foresight and fluency. She explained that she loves it when Granny and Grandpa volunteer to look after her and give Mummy and Daddy a break. It was <laughs> amazing how she explained that so clearly and fluently. So we, we look back at the, the 40 years of what had been going on, and we also looked not up, but at them, if you like. Now, it's an imperfect analogy, obviously, because we were not, we were not worshipping our parents, clearly. But we, I, think it, I hope it helps you in some senses in what worship is ultimately about. You see, we had a plan, Caroline and I. Not a very formal one. We made it up in the car as we were driving down. <laughs> I was driving. She was, but we had a kind of plan. It was almost like a ritual in some sense. We, we sat down and we went through a couple of things. We looked back and we looked up. And I can tell you that the experience of doing those two things caused two things. It caused mum and dad to be honoured and uh, glad and delighted. And it caused us to be joyful. Uh, we got loads and loads of joy out of doing that, out of looking back and looking at them. And like I say, we weren't worshipping them, but in the in- illustration, it was as though we were like the worshippers. We, we took some time, we made a plan, we, we made it about them, not about us. We looked back and we looked up, and do you know what? Yeah, they received honour and delight and joy and all the rest of it, and we had a great time. And do you notice, it's not on the screen, but in that psalm, uh, in verses 4 to 6, I think, joy is mentioned three times. Because for some, that's what worship is. It brings joy to the, that person that worships. He doesn't say, and by the way, make sure that you cultivate as much joy as you can. He just says, joyful, way, joyful worship will go. Even the, even the rivers are going to clap our hands in joy. Such is the greatness and goodness of God. When you look back and you look up, and joy starts to come. Now, we also did a little bit of looking forward. We said to mum and dad, like, what are you excited about in the future? What are you dreaming for? We uh, at least afterwards kind of prayed for them. We, we looked forward ahead as to what's going what's to come. 
It's only a couple of years ago that my dad was very ill and we weren't quite sure like, how, how long was he going to have. So it was important for us to say, however long you have, like, we're with you, we're for you, we're grateful for you. What's going to come? Let's be excited. And those of you who are in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we were just basically doing a bit of what I trust you are doing in the context of community, looking ahead to what God's going to do. There's no such thing as retirement, is there, in the kingdom of God? Just another phase of, uh, of serving him and extending that same kingdom. Possibly the most fruitful phrase, fruitful, fruitful phase of all. And in this psalm, the psalmist looks forward as well at what God will do. Specifically, he says, The Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So he looks forward to what God will do. And again, he's speaking in a, a, a Jewish context, expecting God to come and rescue people of Israel and establish the kingdom and so on and so forth. But he's also looking forward in a prophetic context into the ultimate coming of God to restore all things new. This psalm takes us to the ultimate thing that God will do in the future. So I'd encourage you to do in worship, to look ahead to Jesus' promise to return. If Jesus promised that he would die, he promised he would rise in three days. He did those two things. We can trust he'll also return. Exactly. So this helps us, that little passage helps us to also look forward to the ultimate, if you like, judgment, the moment at which God in Jesus returns, it says, to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And the return of Jesus, which sounds, this, if you're not a Christian, it sounds like a fantastical, mythical idea, but again, it's grounded in the historical event of the resurrection. Investigate that, and a God who promised to rise from the dead and did is perfectly capable of returning to complete that which he started, not least to make all things new, to put everything right. His judgment will be fierce, and it will be fair, and it will be just, or with equity, as it says in this psalm. Like you might not be a Christian this morning, you might be thinking, I, most of what you're saying is nonsense, or at least I'm not even sure if there is a God. And if that's who you are and where you're at, I'm just really glad that you're here. And I wonder whether the one thing we probably could agree on is that we would all have, if not a yearning, then a desire for the world to be better than it is, right? For things to be put right, for injustice to uh, be be, be punished, for suffering to cease, for, for hurt to stop, for authority to be used for people's goodness and not for oppression. We long, in simple terms, do we not, for good to win and evil to lose. That's why it's in so much of the human fabric of human expression. So many plays and books and novels and films and pieces of music and pieces of art. There's this one narrative that goes right through the course of it that humans basically say, is it possible that ultimately evil loses and good wins? And it's in so much of the human artistic expression. Not least in the mouth of Samwise Ganji in Lord of the Rings, who says kind of sorrowfully and movingly to Frodo, is everything sad going to come untrue? Tolkien, just what a wonderful way he had of just encapsulating the the human condition. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything wrong going to be righted? And the story of the Bible, indeed, the part of the way to worship that this psalmist is looking to, is to say to Samwise Ganji, yes, it is. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Not in the sense that it will never have happened, but that it will, it will cease. And all that is good will be greater. And all that is evil and wrong will be ceased. Everything that is broken will be healed. The Bible even says, 
I forget where, forgive me, in 1 Corinthians, I think. The Bible even says that such will be, I'm paraphrasing here, if you know the actual verse, shout out in a moment. The Bible basically says in 1 or 2 Corinthians, such will be the, in, the greatness and the, the perfection with which Jesus makes all things new and perfect, that even the worst of things, the Bible says, will essentially feel momentary and light. That's the exact phrase. They will feel momentary and light. Not because they are momentary and light now, they're wrong and bad and painful. But He's saying such will be the degree to which Jesus returns and brings such this incredible kingdom of goodness and creativity and rightness and greatness that somehow all the believers, and it will only be the believers in Jesus that will be there, be with Jesus, will end up saying, not I've forgotten those awful, awful things, but somehow they pale. They pale into insignificance. Such is what I'm now faced with. So when you worship, if you worship by looking back at what God has done, looking up at what he's like, and looking forward to what he might do, you both honor him, because worship is about him, not about us. None of those songs said, I am true, I am good, I am, worship is about God. But the extraordinary thing is, as the psalmist experiences, when you look back, up and forward, you get to be joyful. So you should unashamedly seek as much pleasure as you can from worship. We're built to do that as well. Problems, you look for it in different places. Look for it in God, in worship, by looking back, up, forwards. How are we doing? A bit sweaty? <laughs> okay, we're almost there. Then we're going to worship and get even sweatier, probably. <laughs> so, breathing in, if you haven't already got it, is about looking back, up, and forward. Breathing out. How do we breathe out this last few points? How do we leave, breathe out our worship to God? It, that the breathing out, having done the looking back up and forward, might include, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, might include professions of pain and confusion. The psalms are full of just gritty, real, snotty-nosed, tearful expressions of how hard life is and people telling God that in a corporate worship song. So it might include that, and that's okay. More than okay, God receives it. But it will also, the breathing out will also include, having done the breathing in, it will also include professions of our commitment to love God, to follow him, to want to see his kingdom come. But the trouble is, I don't naturally want to submit myself to the plans of God. I don't naturally want to make life about him and rather than about me unless I've breathed in his goodness first. I don't naturally declare my love for God, breathing out, unless I first breathe in his love for me. But breathing out will in, in, involve... And good songs of worship will involve breathing out our commitment to him, our desire to serve him, make much of him, make his gospel known, and joy comes. And singing and music is a central part of that. That's why these little series are called Summer Songs. That's why we sing, partly why we sing every Sunday, and why we will continue to do, and why the church has been doing it for, for 2,000 years. Maybe I'm thinking about singing. This might be a good time for the band to, to come and join me because they lead us so well in singing our worship. Scientists have recently found that music stimulates more part of the brain than almost any other human function. It is a remarkable gift that God has given us. This thing called music that just kind of does things to our brain, right? All of us know what it is, do we not? To be moved in some way by music, to be inspired, to be amused 
to be uh, moved. It unites people in a way that is unlike anything else, or it gives us a common purpose. It, it just does things, and God's wired. He's not thinking, blimey, that music thing worked out well. <laughs> He's given us this gift, which we can use for him or for ill, in order to help us fulfill the purpose for which we've made. So thank you, uh, particularly to Ross and Christy and, and Jamie and Ellen and all the musicians who give their time and prayer to helping us live out that aspect of the purpose for which you're made. Singing. Singing in worship. And sometimes people say, well, I kind of struggle with your style of worship. How I don't get how people sort of bow and, and lift their hands and maybe get tearful and, and express their emotions. Like, what's that all about? Now, I'm not here to say that style is the thing. Absolutely not. I have seen people who have stood in a church service with a, a hymn book here and they're just singing quietly. Not, their eyes aren't closed. But I know that in their heart is a deeply profound desire for Jesus. And they're expressing it that way. And I also know people who have jumped around with their hands in the end and all the kind of stuff and their heart is far from God. So I'm not here, nor is the Bible here, to promote style. God's after heart. What I am here to say is that worship expressed through singing and speaking will involve heart, mind, body, and soul. It will involve a, some kind of connection with the emotions and perhaps the body as well. And people say, well, that feels a bit awkward. And like, men, is it weird for men to like sing songs particularly? Is that more of a women thing? I don't know. Well, look at this next, next slide. Like, it's not a novel idea. I'm not the first preacher to sort of suggest that this is a thing. But, but there's a whole bunch of men worshiping, basically. They are looking at something they believe to be of supreme worth and lifting their hands and their voices in unison and saying, that is amazing. Now, I'm not knocking sport. Those of you who know me will know that I love my sport. And when England won the World Cup recently in cricket, I was pretty much doing that, and I was on my own. <laughs> so I'm not knocking that at all. But that's, that's basically a bunch of blokes kicking around in football. And it's prompting that sense of, wow! And the response of, wow, is often to sing loudly to smile, to shout, to jump, to raise hands, because you're basically you're lifting your body towards, towards the heavens, I would argue, in the way that we're made to do. So don't tell me that we, you know, it's not a Western thing or it's not a man thing to physically and abundantly and joyfully worship. Just the last slide, Jamie, would be great. You know, if, if a bunch of guys, of whom I've been one, will do that because they're impressed by how well another bunch of guys kick a ball around, what might it look like if a bunch of believers looked back at the enormity of what God has done? Even if it's just putting this incredible creation together by the word of his mouth. And then looked up at God in Jesus and said, gosh, I can see what God is like because he's shown me in Jesus. This incredible combination of grace and truth, never taking a backward step, always prepared to confront and challenge and speak truth, and yet in a way that was so infused with grace that all the people who we think will be most offended came flocking to him. How is God like that? Think of the compassion he showed, the fact that he wept over people. He went all the way to the cross because he was so consumed with a love for people and the desire to do justice for that which we have done and has been done to us and to establish and donate and give merciful forgiveness. You look up at who God is and then we look forward to what he's going to do. I mean, just in the next week, who knows? What God, I'm not saying just hunker down and wait for the kingdom of heaven to fully come. It's coming. I always say, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is here. Do we see the fraction of what we want to see? Absolutely not. 
But we can look ahead and say, are you really going to come, Jesus, and make all things new? Make everything that is good greater and all that is sad come untrue. And is it possible that you've started that process now? So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I promise you, you can be in the lowest of lows. And some of you know me that I've been there in the last few weeks, low. But you take a decision (laughs) to look back, to look up, to look ahead. And you, you enable community to help you do that and give you a kick and a cuddle to get you there. You will find a joy that, guess what? Just like the Bible says, and a peace that, like the Bible says, cannot be surpassed. It's untranscendable. So why don't we do that? Why don't we stand to our feet? Why don't you begin, even in your mind right now, you can close your eyes. If this is all brand new to you and super weird, that's okay. Just look on, wonder. But we're just going to spend some time now to, in song, to do what the psalmist did 3,000 years ago, to do what the church is exhorted to do now. Colossians 3.16. Just close your eyes if you're willing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5.19. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done. And we stand here pretty hot and sweaty. And some of us love to do things a certain way. And there are styles and ways of doing things. And we're, we're not exalting any of those things. But we're just asking you to help us step into the fullness of joyful worship. Part of the purpose for which you made human beings. In order that you might receive the glory of which you're worth. And in order that we might know a joy that simply cannot be surpassed. We greedily, as we fix our eyes on you, we also greedily ask for joy to well up in our souls and our spirits. Amen.